Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Wittering. It's nice to be joined by Igor today. Igor is uh, from Germany and he is going to be talking to us about protracted benzodiazepine withdrawal. It's a condition that he has uh, suffered from for about eight years and I'm just delighted that he's agreed to come on and talk about his experience. So, Igor, thank you so much for coming on. Hi. Um, first, I would like to thank you for taking me on. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about myself. I'm 45 years old, as you can tell by my accent. I am not a native English speaker. I'm from Germany. And um, I am married. I have a 12-year-old son. I live in a nice little house in a suburb of Berlin in Germany. I work in IT and I actually, I do live a pretty good life except for um, the last year, eight years where I'm suffering from having taken benzodiazepine for about a year and then going cold turkey. And today I want to talk a little bit about my experience with the German healthcare system and the total lack, I think, of the German healthcare system understanding what this disease is or that this could be a problem. Great. So we'll get into all of that. I think a great place to start really is uh, just with the beginning, which is how did you end up taking benzodiazepines in the first place? Well, I have to start like really in the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. When I grew up, I was a very anxious person, always fearful afraid that I might get sick, that I might have a brain tumor and stuff like that, like really hypochondriac or something. And um, when I was around 14, 15, I discovered alcohol. And that was like a wake up thing for me. I started drinking. And for, I'd say 20 years, I was a pretty regular drinker. And um, whenever there was stress in my life, I would resort to alcohol. And of course, if you know about alcohol, you know it is like a catalyst for mental health issues. So I, I don't know if I would have developed any issues, but it wasn't doing me any good. And around 2015, there were some significant changes in my life. First, my grandfather died, who I was very close to, and I had to deal with that. And I started drinking again, and then one of my closest friends died at around the same age that I am now of a heart attack and that was it really caused me a lot of pain and, and and suffering and but at the same time there were like there was positive stress in my life my wife and i we bought our house and we were preparing to move into the house i got a new job in my hometown i didn't have to have to commute anymore and all this was just piling up and it all ended in me literally being unable to sleep and back then, I was really stupid about my health. I had just been grinding on, you know, just being probably a functioning alcoholic, even though I, I wouldn't call myself that because there were, like, always times where I didn't drink. And so a person that is very close to me, I, I'm not going to reveal who it is, approached me and said, you know, I've, I've noticed that you're not looking good and you seem to have problems. What's going on? And I told this person, I said, I cannot sleep and I cannot function. And this person was like, yeah, I got something for you because I'm going through the same things. And this person gave me a bottle of benzodiazepine. And mm -hmm. me 
being stupid and like trusting this person didn't research what it was and this person told me this helps me sleep so um when things came crashing down i um, followed this person's instruction and i took 10 drops of this stuff and let me tell you it was the same experience i had when i had my first drop of alcohol just 10 times better all of a sudden the voices were gone the the self-doubt distress the anxiety and man did i sleep for the first time in years yeah. and it was yeah. just it, i i thought i had found this life hack and um what i did was i stuck to these instructions mind you at this point i had, hadn't spoken to a doctor this was self-prescribed and you might not know a lot about German healthcare system, but of course you cannot get this over the counter here. You'd have to go to a doctor and they have to prescribe that to you. But I didn't even look that stuff up and I took it. And um, whenever I took it, I felt better. And then I stopped taking it. And this probably went on for about a year. And, um, and the, what happened the, was... And Igor, the, yeah. the time that you were taking it, were you... Um, actually, I'm going to say one thing first because I think it may be interesting for the users out there. So, um, 20% of the benzodiazepine uh, using population are, are not getting them from doctors, and out of that 20% of people, are uh, the most common place that they get them from are uh, from uh, friends and family members, and so uh, that's a really common story. Uh, what, what happened to you? In fact, the most common story of of how okay. this happens, and so. The entire time uh, that you were on them, were you just getting it from a friend? Could you kind of tell us about that? Like how how did that affect your relationship? Was it pretty easy to get them or were you ever getting them from a doctor? What what was that whole, like how did you end up with enough to take it for a year? Well, uh, I, at first I got like half a bottle and I used it up pretty quickly, I think. And then I just went to this person and I said, you uh, look, uh, I'm out of this miracle stuff. Do you happen to have more? And this person was like, yeah, that's no problem. I just go to my doctor and then I got a new complete bottle. And this calmed me down so much because now I had like double the amount and I knew I had this never ending supply of it. And I thought this could go on forever. And it didn't, it didn't impact our relationship because I'm sad to say that I think this person is still taking benzodiazepines. Uh, up mm -hmm. to this day, we have never talked about it until now. And this person has weird health issues that oh, no. now I know relate to the, the prolonged usage of benzodiazepines. But this person, I were in a complicated relationship and I am afraid to uh, bring this up. Sure. Makes sense. Um, and... So talk to us now about when did you decide that you wanted to 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 come off or stop? How did how did the stoppage occur? Well, um, I <clears throat> I experienced withdrawal symptoms and I couldn't figure out what it was. Um, I had I, I took the stuff to function in social settings. And then I stopped taking it when I felt better, kind of like somebody who has to take antidepressants and they feel better and they stop taking it. And mm -hmm. I was like, so I, I feel better. Now I don't need it anymore. And about, I think at the end of 2015, 
there were big changes in my job and I was being promoted to the um, vice CTO of our company. This is this, I work at a hospital and we have a rather large IT um, stuff. And I realized that when I was taking it, I wasn't, I couldn't function. I had this brain fog and it, it felt like the drug that it was. And I decided I have to cut down on it, but that wasn't easy because when I stopped taking it, I started feeling miserable, but I could just not make the connection. I thought this uh, medicine was helping me, but instead it was causing all the problems. And I think at the end of 2015, I had some sort of mental breakdown. I was in a meeting. I still remember that. And I ended up in the emergency room because I was having a panic attack. I thought I was having a heart attack. I couldn't breathe. And the people there, the doctors, they were kind of clueless. They were like, you know, you don't, you're not having a heart attack. You're fine. Your blood work is, is okay. We don't know what's going on. And so this continued for probably half a year when I um, once again ended up in the emergency room in excruciating pain because I had stopped taking the stuff. And then I was hospitalized for six weeks. And during that time, that was it, it was um, not the psych ward. I, I looked it up, it's psychosomatic ward. It's kind of like um, um, a specialty in our hospital where they look at your body, at your mind. And there, th that was the first time I talked to a doctor about this because they said, we cannot figure out what's up with you, but you look like you've been taking drugs. And you can yeah. tell in, in, in the eyes, you know, at these pinpoint uh, pupils. And I said to the doctor, I'm not taking drugs, but I'm taking this stuff here. It helps me sleep. And that doctor, she was like, mind you, I was in the psychosomatic ward. There were lots of people with mental health issues and probably some people who were going through withdrawals themselves. And so I brought this doctor, uh, this medication. And I, to this day, I will remember the look on, on this poor woman's face. She was the head of the department and she looked at me and she, eyes that big. She's like, you're taking this? I'm like, yeah, what is this? And that's like when she told me, she said, we have four levels of intervention, like medically, and this is the atomic bomb. This is what we give people who have seizures, who are um, withdrawing from alcohol, and who have like um, other severe mental health issues, and you've been taking this by yourself. I said, yes. And for the first time, I realized that I might have made a mistake. Oh, my God. And, um, yeah. And yeah. She would, this person, this doctor, I mean, she opened my eyes to it. I still didn't know what it was. She said, you might know it as a, a volume, valium. So it's, mm -hmm. like, uh, it's like, like that stuff from the Rolling Stones song, Mother's Little Helper. And she's like, yes, mm -hmm. that is the stuff. And I was like, you know, they describe it to housewives. I mean, how, how bad could it possibly be? And at that point, I would have expected a person working her um, specialty or in her department to tell me about um how dangerous this was. And instead of talking to me about it, she said, you have to stop taking it. And we were not talking about like tapering it. That's, you know, that's, that's a term I learned from one of your videos. I didn't know that was yeah. even possible. So no tapering, I went cold turkey. And okay. They, All right. But yeah. before we, before we go to there, what was the pain that you were experiencing that led to you going to the emergency room? Talk, talk a little bit about those symptoms. 
Yeah, so I had really weird uh, nerve pain, like in 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 uh, in my chest, the solar plexus. It's kind of like I I can't really describe it. It was kind of like somebody was poking around in it. You couldn't really pinpoint it, but I'd say you have this this uh, pain level where you go like one zero is is no pain at all, and ten is the worst imaginable pain. It was probably in, in eight. And the only way to bear that was like by sitting curled over, hunched over, which was kind of okay for me because I sat in front of the computer all day. And then I had these weird um, vision problems where I saw light flashes and static. And I thought that is not normal. So okay. and, and I, I remember being in the emergency room and um, they were trying to get my pain down and whatever they gave me, it wasn't touching the pain. I was just in so much pain and they didn't know what was going on. They thought I was going crazy. And the Valium, yeah. how, how had you been taking it? Was it like a little bit here, a little bit there, like not really consistent or like what was the pattern of use? Since I hadn't spoken to a doctor, I kind of self-medicated. What I did do was I followed the instruction that this person gave me. And this person's doctor had given it to them and said, whenever you feel bad, take 10 drops. So I don't know how much that is, yeah. but, and the person said, my doctor said, only take 10 drops, never take more than one dose a day. So like it's 10 drops per day and please do not mix it with alcohol. And I followed oh, yeah. that. So in a way it was kind of good for me because I stopped drinking, but wow. um, I guess 10 drops is quite a lot yeah you know an interesting thing is and i've talked about this on the channel was that i used to take xanax as well and um and how it kind of you know it, it starts off really great and this thing that kind of works for everything but you know if, well for me it was only probably like two or three months later that i started having really strange obsessive thoughts you know anxiety worse than it normally was irritability, short fuse. I didn't get any of the pain. You know, I, I didn't have a complicated time coming off of it, but I think it's a, the benzodiazepines are really interesting because yeah, they work great at the start, but then people don't realize as the months go on, how it's changing their mood. And for you, I, I guess, eventually, um, sounds like, yeah, you were having mood symptoms as well, but also physical pain and, and visual things going on. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, during those, I, I stayed at the hospital for, for uh, six weeks and I pretty much went to cold turkey. And yeah. I remember that nobody told me about how horrible it would be except for this one nurse, like this senior nurse, old lady, gray hair, you know, you know like harsh face, you know, she had seen everything. And she was, she was like, she talked to me, it's German, it's yeah. like, benzodiazepines, eh? You're going to have fun with this young man. And I was like, <sighs> yeah. So, and yeah. she was the only person who knew what was, what was coming for me. How much Valium were you taking? Did you ever figure that out? No. And tell, tell you, honestly, I'm afraid to find out because I've watched all the videos with all the other patients and they're talking about like milligrams and stuff. And I'm afraid that, I've, that if I find out, it will just make the real realization so much worse how much I destroyed my body and how much damage I did to it. But I can I, I can give you the medication and it's ten drops, so I don't know. One drop is one milligram. I, I don't know. 
Not yeah. sure. It would be a tremendous amount, though. <laughs> well, I've seen some crazy things. You know, I've, uh, I've yeah. had people come to me with, you know, 36 milligrams of Xanax, which is, oh God. you know, a milligram of Xanax is usually what you use to sedate someone in an emergency room setting. And so mm -hmm. uh, up to 36 a day is uh, quite something. Um, so... I'm pretty sure it's probably not that bad, and 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 uh, my patient's doing well. So, um, but let's <laughs> let's let's uh, let's carry on. Tell me, what was it like going cold turkey? <clears throat> well, um, I stayed at the hospital, so I was under supervision. And the first night, I was pretty optimistic because that was still the drugs in my system. And the next day I experienced panic attacks like never before. I was, I, I thought I was going crazy. And the only thing that calmed me down was knowing that I was in a hospital and if something happened to me, they were able to help. Mm -hmm. Looking back at it, I'm kind of glad that I didn't know what was coming because nobody told me. And so I kind of went through it day by day. What they did do was they gave me um, another medication. I looked it up. It's called German name. is Atuzil, Prometazine, Prometazine or something. Sure. They gave me that, yeah, three times a day. They said, okay, you can have this at 6 o'clock uh, for dinner and for lunch. And I was literally the first person in the morning who stood, stood in front of that nurse's office, shaking, bent over in pain, like a junkie waiting for this medication and um that was for the I mean, first time when i when i realized where I, where like I had a, it's a yeah. nausea medication though it's not like anything that would help with benzo withdrawal i think this is this is what they gave me and i think the placebo yeah. effect yeah. kind of helped me because i knew sure. i had that and um yeah so they gave that to me and i um it's kind of blurry because like the first two weeks, I don't really remember anything, just being in pain. And the thing is like our hospital is like a hospital where you can actually study medicine, like a teaching hospital. And what I didn't know was, I mean, this is the hospital I worked at. So in IT, oh so my like God. just two, two buildings over, it's like my office, there was my boss and my colleagues and there were students coming into my room. And like um, we had this professor, um, really famous guy, I think in Germany for psychosomatic. And he was talking to the students in, in English because we had a lot of foreign students. And he told these students, so this young man over there, he is going to experience its cravings. And mm. I, and he was talking like I wasn't in the room and I had to look up what, what, what are cravings. And I gotta say, um, which I'm really glad for, I never had any cravings. It's the same with alcohol. I could stop when I wanted. I could stop with this. Of course, there was the physical withdrawal where I wanted to take it to feel better, but I never craved it as in, oh, I need this now. I want to take this and everything is going to be better. I knew it wasn't making me better and I knew how to stop. So yeah. I guess there was some I'll some comment good on in that, that because I think it's like yeah. interesting uh, you know, the, the thing that happens with benzodiazepine withdrawal is that uh, the sheer pain of it, the, you know, the, the physical pain, but also the mental torture of it, I think is it, it, it drives people to want to reinstate, you know, to get back on the dose. Mm -hmm. 
But then people confuse it with something like cravings from, I don't know, like craving for cigarettes if you've come off where there's a very kind of psychological pull towards it. And it's often missed on the healthcare professionals that it's really driven from a place of physical suffering. And then they're just saying, oh, you're just craving, you know, you're just craving the drug. Um, it's it's just psychological, just toughen up a little bit. And it can be so, you know, that mindset is really dangerous when someone's right where you are, you know, uh, in, in acute yes. withdrawal. Yeah. And I, I think they were surprised that I didn't try to take it again because for, I think for about four weeks, they took like blood every two days or something. And they told me they were checking it for my vitamin levels. But later on, the doctor told me they were checking to see if I was staying clean because they couldn't believe that I just stopped taking it because I'd given like the bottle of medication to the doctor and I never wanted it back. And after a while, they stopped. What what was so so insane about it is that around that time, I was like stuck in this mental loop of like being sick. I was concerned with my with my uh, with my heart because my my friend had died of a heart attack. You know these these obsessive thoughts yeah. were just going around around in my brain. So what they did in psychosomatic is I was going through withdrawals, and they sent me around the hospital and doing all these tests with me. They were thorough. You know they wanted to rule out anything, and so I did an IIG. You know when I was still in the twitching akathisia phase. And the doctor, the neurologist, he was really mad at me because I couldn't sit still in the chair. I was shaking and like his readings weren't working out. And he was mad that I had wasted this appointment. I mean, they could have told him this guy is through withdrawals, but apparently they were oblivious to that. And then they did like a, a cardio exercise test with me. They hmm. strapped me on that bike and wanted me to like, um, do a stress test. I couldn't do it because I was freaking out and they did an ultrasound of my heart and then they did a colonoscopy and a gastroscopy and everything. And, you know, the reason for my pain was the benzodiazepine. There was nothing else. But all of these tests, they just stressed me out and made me feel like I was going insane because there, obviously there was something wrong with me, but every doctor said, you're fine. You're okay. So mm -hmm. that, that was, uh, it was pretty much a nightmare. How, what was the discharge like from the hospital? You know, when you like, I'm, like what happened at the end? I imagine you were still very <laughs> sick when, when they sent you home. How, how did that all come about? Well, that was, that was, um, that was pretty interesting because, uh, and some of the videos I watched online about people experienced the same thing. They said they had some sort of, um, walking ghost phase, like where you're off the benzodiazepine, but your brain is still running like in, in an emergency mode and it's trying to cope with the fact that you're not using it anymore. And that's kind of what happened to me because after around a month, I started feeling so good that I told my wife, you know, bring me my running shoes and bring me my, bring me a shirt and some shorts. And I actually uh, started running around the campus. And um, I guess the doctors, they were like, you know, it's been almost, a, it's over a month now, you know, two weeks, we're going to release you because obviously you're over this stuff. And I remember feeling actually pretty okay. All things considered the real nightmare started when I, arrived at home and tried to go back to work like nothing happened 
That's like when the weird symptoms started, which I'm still dealing with to this day. Yeah. So I haven't heard the term walking ghost, but for the listeners out there, um, what Igor is talking about is the lag phase between uh, acute withdrawal and the development of protracted withdrawal symptoms, which commonly can be like usually it's like maybe six weeks to i've had it be up to around six months when they're off the drug but usually it hits around i'd say about maybe two to three months off the drug is when people just get slammed with protracted withdrawal symptoms and i always think about it it's like why like why was there this like brief period of recovery before you got hit and you know i think maybe it's like a a car engine revving it's like your brain you know comes off the drug it's able to compensate for a short period of time by like revving its engine really hard but then the whole system just collapses and it falls it's just too much for the brain to readapt or i don't know maybe there's something else but that's that's what he's describing so talk to us now about this this next phase so you go home when did you get hit with um the protracted withdrawal it happened at the perfect time. Um, my wife and I, we had booked a little vacation in a family resort with my son. Yeah. And I, I remember that um, we went to the ocean and we had booked for like five or six days and we just had to go in the middle of it. Because I, they had given me this Atuzil, you know, this nausea drug, and that wasn't just touching it. it was, there was nothing. I had panic attacks. This weird pain came back and the additional... A uh, symptom I had was the benzo belly. It's like weird uh, um, digest digestive issues. I was bloated. I, I no matter what I ate, like I felt so bloated, like I, I couldn't breathe. And I told my wife, "I we have to go home. I have to go to the hospital. There's something many, seriously many, wrong." How many months was it since you left the hospital? When it was hit? probably around two two months. Yeah. Yeah. So I had two weeks where I was able to go back to work and I was like, yeah, I'm back. I'm good. You know, I'm the dude who was here in the psych ward for six weeks, but I'm back. Mm-hmm. And then it hit me. And I remember going back and, and um, my wife was, she was really sad because she wanted to help me because, but she didn't know what to do. And I remember that I went back to work on Monday. I had promised my wife that I would check into the hospital, but Monday morning I felt better, like it sometimes is with this. And I had this really important appointment with, with some subcontractors, and during that appointment I collapsed. And I ended up in the emergency room again. And then they kind of said, well, we don't know what to do with you. You know, you." they put me in a hospital bed for four or five days, and then they said, Mr. Sopranowitz, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do. This is all in your head. But it also, it might be cancer. So please go to the cancer ward, you know, and maybe there's a tumor in your spine or something because we don't know what's going on. And um, I never did that. I don't know why I didn't do that, but I never ended up doing that. Yeah. So what what did you think had happened to you at that point when the doctors said, we have no idea what's going on. Like what, what was that? I had no idea. I had no idea either. The thing why we're having this conversation right now is because for the last seven years, I was wondering what was wrong with me. And I think around last year during the summertime, I um, started thinking about my past life and I started researching about alcohol abuse 
because for the better part of 20 years, I had been drinking quite heavily and I found lots of videos online about the negative effects. And I thought, yeah, some of these effects, they fit, but that's not it. And then I think in September of last year, I stumbled upon one of your videos and there was this young man, I don't remember his name. And he, when he was like rattling off the symptoms, you know, you should have seen my face. I was just like, this is it. This is me. It's a different person, a different country, but this is me. All the symptoms all of a sudden made sense. And there was this immense relief where I realized I am not insane. I'm not making this up. This is real. There is, has been damage that I did to myself, but there is damage there. And um, I felt better for a while. But the, the seven years until then, they were just a nightmare because I couldn't talk to my wife about it anymore. It, it's, not, it's not like she doesn't care, but she's not a doctor and nobody could help me. And I've been through so many doctors and we have this awesome healthcare system in, in, in Germany. You know, some people will say, you know, it's not perfect, but it's free healthcare sort of. And all my weird doctor's appointments were paid for, but nobody was able to help me. I went to a, a pain specialist and this lady, she was like, I can see you're in a, a tremendous amount of pain and we have to reset your pain memory. But in the end, only time helped when uh, the last, I think it took about five years for me to actually feel normal again. Yeah. One, that's amazing that uh, the impact of just uh, patient interviews can have. And maybe that's one of the reasons you reached out to come on because I mean, these stories, they, they can have a huge impact. So that's, uh, you know, I love hearing that. Um, so let's, I want to stay with the how, let me ask you this. How many doctors do you think you saw trying to figure out what this was? I don't think it was that many. It was probably like five or six, but they were all specialists in their field. So I had the pain doctor. This is actually a, a, a woman who practices in my hometown and she was recommended to me by other people. And she, she was kind of like the person to go when you are in pain and everybody else has given up on you. She yeah. couldn't figure out what it was because I never made that connection, but at least she was able to help with the pain. And what I, what yeah. I read online, what other people have is like benzodiazepine seems to completely deplete your vitamin D and vitamin B12 from your body. And I was totally lacking in it. And she prescribed me that and did, this did kind of help. But she pretty much, she um, gave me um, pain medication, like syringes that she stuck in my back. I don't know what, what it was, but mm -hmm. it kind of numbed the areas that were in pain. And so I was actually able to breathe again freely and move around because up until that point, I was pretty much, I stayed at home. I little, just little amounts of stress put this sickness into overdrive. I couldn't partake in social activities. There was this constant brain fog and feeling out of it, this, this feeling of gloom and doom and depression and sadness, and nothing seemed to help. And um, I went to a specialist for digestive tract issues, 
and they prescribed me all this weird medication and, you know, like uh, ointments and whatnot. That, that was actually when I had reached the end of the German healthcare system. That's like when I had to start paying for all this stuff that I ordered off of Amazon or something. And now I know that what I did back then was the wrong thing because I should have taken it slow, but I tried to fix it on so many levels at the same time. Now I know that slow does it, no changes, and um, I did all this stuff. I took all these weird things, and I think I, I made it worse or I prolonged it. Yeah. What did you think had happened to you? think had happened to me yeah like well, back then you know after you see the fifth doctor and everyone says we have no idea what's going on and you're in severe pain like what like how did you come to terms with having a functioning body and then being debilitated since i never made that connection i thought it had something to do with me just being like like it literally just being in my head you know that um it was something that was there because my brain wasn't functioning correctly because there were moments of moments of light i would say where i actually started feeling better for a little bit and i could actually there were days where i could forget about it and i was like okay if you don't think about it it's not there and then there were other days where it just came back with vengeance without having done anything differently. And I, I remember being in tears and talking to my wife and saying, you know, at this moment, I don't care if I die within the next six months. I just want to know what is going on. But I had all the doctors had given up on me. Nobody knew what was going on. You've heard it. It's like it's it's in your it's in your head. It's probably cancer. Nobody made that connection. And so I just suffered on in silence. I uh, went to work. I, I was really grateful for my employer because they put up with a lot of stuff. I was able to work from home and I did the things and I buried myself in work. That kind of helped, you know, it took my mind off. But we're talk pretty much talking about five lost years where I pretty much didn't do anything at all. I just sat at home and set it out. What was the impact of this on your relationship with your wife? I think it, um, only during the last couple of months, I've started talking about what this did to my wife. My wife is a very silent and you know, person, she's always taking the back stand. She's never in the front. And it's kind of hard to figure out what she's thinking about unless I talk to her about it. But um, I think there were moments where my wife was very desperate. You know, we had bought a house. There were money issues. We were raising a little kid. And um, my wife, I think she aged a lot during that time. You know, she... She is not the woman that I fell in love with. She changed. She sees things differently now. And after a while, I think she did, just didn't want to hear about it anymore. She, I don't know if she thought that I was making it up or that I was just, that I had other issues. But um, we kind of grew apart for a long time. Just during the last one or two years, I'm trying to make amends 
And during the last year, last half year, I, I've been talking to her about this. And I said, look, this is what I'm going through. And that's the reason. And she said um, that it gave her relief to know what it was and that it wasn't something that, uh, or that, that she, now she knows that it's something that, um, that I can get help with or talk to other people about. Yeah. What was it like for you when you were suffering I don't know, either knowing by what she said or perhaps just feeling that you were making it up or that it wasn't real or that it was like, what was that like for you? I don't know. It felt, it felt like, like, I don't know. It felt like I deserved it because I, in, in my mind, it was like I had been abusing alcohol for such a long time. And during that time, I wasn't a nice person. And so kind of this is how it goes now. And um, I should be glad that she's still with me. And um, I just have to suck this up and kind of deal with it. And I felt grateful to her that she stayed with me and she did all these things. But at the same time, I felt really sad about not being able to give back. And during that time, I, I couldn't even thank her properly because I was so out of it. Yeah. yeah. Do you think you're, is it, do you have a, a son or a daughter? I have a son. Son. Did you, um, how much of what happened to you do you think your son understands? I, I, don't, I don't know how old he was when this happened to you. Maybe you could share yeah. a little bit about the impact yeah. on your relationship so... with your son. Um, so, um, I love my son, my wife, you know, before I was sick, I, you know, I, I told you about how my wife is, she, she doesn't talk about feelings. And one of the things she said, I overheard her say that on the phone to one of her friends was like, he is the super dad. I have a very complicated relationship with my father and I was aiming to make everything better. I was trying to like change the things or the ways that my father treated me. I would, didn't want to repeat that. And around the time that Friedrich, that's my son's name, was four years old, that's when this started. And I know that back then there was this time when all of a sudden he couldn't understand why I wasn't doing the things anymore that I did with him. You know, the horsing around and going to yeah. going to uh, going outside and riding a bike and everything. And um, he was asking about it, and I said, I'm sick, and but I'm getting better. But it's been so long that I think he just kind of accepted it. And I've only been bouncing back the last two or three years, and I'm trying to make it up. But, of course, Friedrich is 12 now, and he has different needs. He's not a little kid anymore, and he's content now with me not horsing around with him. Now we mm -hmm. talk, we do like adult stuff. We talk, yeah. we talk about our hobbies and interests. And that is yeah. the way I try to make amends. Yeah. Before I forget, I, I want to just take a moment and have you just catalog your symptoms. If you could just, you know, in, in, a, in a few minutes, just run through, you know, what were you going through that first five years? What did... What did a bad day look like for you in terms of what was happening in your body and your mind? Yeah. Okay. So I'd say um, the, the worst thing is I, I still up to this day, I am unable to sleep. So uh, my sleep schedule is completely wrecked. 
whenever I have to go to bed, I, I get um, in this mental state where I try to force myself to sleep and then it doesn't happen anyway. So like eight years of lack of sleep, you know, it, it's not good. But during those five years, it was pretty much um, I woke up feeling like I hadn't slept at all. Like my body forgot to create energy during the night. I went to bed more tired than uh, I woke up more tired than when I went to bed. Then there was um, the constant anxiety. There was um, claustrophobia, which I didn't have before. It's like just the idea of being locked in a room could drive me crazy. And I had to just, there were meetings where I had to just stand up and leave the room and feeling like I couldn't breathe. And people were giving me strange looks like, ah, there, there he goes again. And there is there was this pain like in my chest, in the center of my chest, that on I, I told my wife like on, on good days it was a three on the pain um measurement and on bad days it was a eight. So usually it was like a seven. It was always there and then there was Des the describe, stomach pain. Describe the pain yeah. in, in as much detail as you can that you had around your chest. It's, that's an interesting question because, you know, when you stub your toe, that pain, you can explain it. That's pain, like physical pain, or you hit your head, or I don't know, you slept on your arm in a wrong way, or you bent your neck or something. This pain was, I, I described it to my wife, like, I am not supposed to feel this. It feels like it is pain. Or like there, there is um, sensation that I am not supposed to feel, like bones grinding against each other, really weird. Like there was fire flowing from the back to the front of my chest, like somebody was stabbing in there. But you know how it feels like when you cut yourself. It's nothing like that, and nothing touches it. You, you can't, like rub it away or you can't push against it you it doesn't help if you take a hot bath it's it's there it is throbbing and grinding and if i were to torture if i wanted to torture somebody you know if i were that kind of person that's something i would do to them this would break anybody after a week i think yeah, one of the strangest things about protracted benzodiazepine withdrawal is all of the strange, I guess we'll call it neuropathic pain because it's damaged nerves that are causing it. And frequently people describe it around around the chest. You know, it kind of has this center here. Sometimes people even call it akathisia, that that feeling. But usually what they what I've heard in the past are two things. One is like a deep aching pain as if someone has just thrown a ball into your stomach really hard and it just sits as like a pit there and it aches. I've heard that a lot. I also hear people say it's like my diaphragm, like the muscles around my diaphragm are twisting and turning and writhing. Some people say it's like getting kind of prodded with a cattle prod, like they have these little electrocutions, but whatever it is that that's happening in this region it it's it's what the damaged nerves are doing you know that's you know because you know once you damage your nerves they can't send uh sensory information in the correct way that's why we have burning sometimes numbness sometimes you know electrical sensations all of it is just different ways these damaged nerves are transmitting information and so i think that's why it's so hard for people to 
to explain, mm-hmm. you know, what is this thing? Because it's, it's, it's not picking up something real. It's just damage. That's, that's what it feels like. It's like this, yeah. this pit sensation. Yeah. Like somebody was sitting on your chest. You have to actually work against it, breathe against it. And this yeah. all day long and on an, on a bad day, it was so on the forefront of my mind that I couldn't do anything. Those were the days where I just stayed at home and my wife pretty much found me in the same position eight hours later when she came back oh from my work. God. Yeah. yeah. So go on, tell us now, um, cause I cut you off and you were about to go into the uh, stomach problems that you were having. Could you tell us about what your, you know, what, what was happening with your gastrointestinal system? What was all of that? Yeah, that was the, the strangest thing ever. Like after, I think about a month after I came out of the hospital, it started. No matter what I ate, my stomach would just feel bloated. Like to the max, I, I, I looked like I was pregnant. I showed this to my wife. This was so weird. I didn't know a body could produce that much gas. And there was this constant belching and letting all this air come out of myself. It's like something for five, ten seconds, just air, air. And it it felt really weird because like, what is this? I have never had this before. And it was pushing up against my lungs and my heart and you couldn't breathe. And when you started moving around, it was it felt like whenever something was in my stomach was moving around, it was just making it worse. And that's, that's when I went to the doctor, to the, um, to the specialist for like intestinal problems. And they were just clueless, you know, they checked the motility and they checked my vitamin levels and I don't know, lots of weird tests and it was all inconclusive. It's like, you shouldn't be having this pain. You shouldn't be having these issues, but there they were. And that's like when I um, tried all these weird diets, you know, fruits only, and then only, I don't know, only bread and then only meat and then no, no solid food at all, only liquids, but none of it helped. Did and I think that's it? been going on for about five years and it's slowly getting better. Yeah. And the, um, did you have any diarrhea or constipation or was it mainly this very big bloating and uncomfortable feeling in your upper stomach? I think it was, it, it was constant diarrhea. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a major thing for concern. That's why the doctor looked, looked into it cause that's not normal, but, but he couldn't find anything. Okay. Yeah. And I have to say, I think for probably like the last year, I've gotten to a point where I can actually just eat normally. There was was stuff I just avoided, like pre-processed food and and like um, I don't know microwave dinners or something. And I didn't eat that because I knew that would just make it worse. But there was also like I couldn't, for example, really weird. I couldn't eat apples. If I wanted yeah. to feel bad the next day, if I ate an apple, I would just feel horrible. I don't know why that is because an apple a day keeps the doctor away, but not in that case. Yeah. <laughs> Anything, um, did you ever have the, um, I'm trying to think other things that people experience commonly. Sometimes I, a lot of burning and numbness in the feet, sometimes burning numbness in the hands, sometimes just a heart rate that just out of nowhere, just starts beating really fast. Did did any of those things happen when you were in your protracted withdrawal? I, I was kind of lucky. I didn't have like the, the 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 burning sensation. What I did have during the first 
years on a regular basis was that I woke up at night and I was just shaking and I couldn't stop. It was really weird. And um, it felt, I don't know, like the onset of a flu, but it wasn't. And my wife was really worried. Like, you have to check. You have to let this uh, get checked out. But I never did. But the thing with the heart, that is something that drove me insane. You know, just doing, just sitting on a couch and getting up would just raise my heart rate. And I felt like my chest was exploding. And, um, but there was nothing, you know, I had uh, um, doctors check it out. I was wearing my Apple watch. My Apple watch said, you know, your pulse is at 78 or something or 80, but it felt like, like I was about to die. Okay. So this is, thank you for cataloging it. It's really helpful to hear, hear the symptoms. Um, now let's turn to a more, uh, I guess the more hopeful and I'm hoping inspiring side of your story. When did things start to turn for, for you? How long into this before you started to notice some improvements? And then just walk me through that period and what you started to notice changing. I think about two years ago, I made the active decision to stop drinking alcohol. Up, on that, up until that point, when there were moments of light, I started uh, having a beer, you know, with my barbecue, and I soon realized that that wasn't doing me any good. So I stopped drinking. I started working out again very slowly, very very light workouts. I bought myself a spinning bike and I remember like sitting on it for 10 minutes and being totally exhausted. And what I also did was I changed my diet. I started taking my vitamins. I started um, like working out and I started going on walks and just being outside and having the sunshine in my face and pretty much learning to stay away from things that stressed me. Because I, I, what I found out is that stress is such a bad thing for me. It doesn't matter if it's good stress or bad stress. And I'm, an, I'm a person who's usually very involved. You know, if you're in discussion at work, I always take sides. I know something. I want to talk to people. I want to get my knowledge out. And when I realized that that wasn't doing me any good, approximately, like, I think, yeah, two, two years ago, now I'm more like I let people do their thing. I do not try to get involved. I, I stay at home. I keep a low profile and like I think the combination of that of not drinking anymore working out living a more active healthy lifestyle I don't know if that is the result of that or if that helps the healing process but I'd say the last two years it's gotten better where I'd say during the last 12 months there have been days or even weeks where I felt normal you could say that. Wow. Yeah. And so this may be a question that's hard to answer. Do you think getting well enabled you to stop drinking, stop start exercising and 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 walking? Like do you think like things were the clouds were clearing and that's why you could do it or was this a conscious decision where you were saying like enough suffering, enough of being in this state, I have to change something and that's when things change that's, pre- that's what, what, pretty much that's pretty much what happened yeah yeah because i decided I, I was looking at myself like i i was wondering where i'd see myself in five years will i still be sitting at home in pain and um 
So I decided for myself that I had to change something because back then I didn't know where this was coming from. So I figured, you know, I'm not dead at this point. You know, a couple of years ago, I felt like I was about to die. I'm still here. So maybe it's not happening anytime soon and this can't go on. And I want to be a father to my son and a husband to my wife. And so I uh, started taking this into my own hands. I didn't, I, I, I knew I had exhausted all medical paths. There was no help there. And I started working out. And I remember that um, I had to learn pretty quickly that when I pushed it too hard, that there was, um, I had to pay for it. You know, there was, um, the issues got worse or the symptoms got worse for a couple of days. But now I'm at the point where I'd say like three or four years ago, two years ago, when I pushed too hard, I was out of it for like a month. And now the the time between feeling bad and feeling good, like the, the, the windows get shorter, you know, like the the, um, the pain is still there, but it doesn't last a week anymore. Now it's maybe a day. So back then it was like maybe 50% of my month was just ruined. Now it's two two days or three days out of each month, which is okay. But then again, like I said at the beginning of this, um, I don't know what happened last year in December of 23. I had COVID. I had the flu. Yeah. And I don't know what happened that did something to my system. And for the last uh, four or five weeks, I have been feeling pretty miserable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like all the progress I made the last two years has pretty much been wiped out. So it feels. Yeah. And um and so I just want to uh, recap and get asked for clarity. And there's no right or wrong answer with this, I want to say. I, I want it to be your personal experience. Do you feel like pushing yourself to re-enter the world, you know, do more exercise, be in the sun, things like that? Do you think that that accelerated your healing? I... I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know I yeah. think it, it, it did help in a way that it showed me that not everything was lost it sounds kind of cheesy but it showed no. me that things were still were still possible and that I could do these things and I kind of forced myself to expose to expose myself to social events and um, try to um, live a normal life and sometimes it works and during those early days it didn't work out and i was sick a lot of times but um the benefit was just there you know i did it more often and i realized i was healing from whatever and um it made it easier to try it again the next time great so um before you, before COVID happened and and you had a setback what were the days like then? You know, I know you said some days you felt completely normal. What were the, what about the days when you didn't feel so good? What, what were the symptoms like? Well, the, uh, the pain was coming back. Um, not at the same intensity. It was not like an eight anymore, but it was like a five. And then I started sitting in that weird position again. My wife could tell. She's like, oh, is it one of, one of, the, one of sorry, these days? I was, yes. was going to say, before things got bad, you know, when, the, when things, you know, before they went downhill, what was it like uh, before COVID and all of that? 
you mean like before I had COVID in twenty three? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when yeah. things were I, when things were better. Yeah, I think I felt pretty normal. Um, what's weird about it is that I, you know, with with having abused alcohol for such a long time, and then being in this uh, withdrawal for such a long time. I had to actually discover who I was. I didn't know who I was. And, and I think that the person I was before all of that is gone. I'm a different person now, but I mm. made amends with that person and I, I felt better. I felt comfortable with myself. I started going, doing, joining social activities again on my own. My wife was um, confused and she was like, is this the new Igor? It's like, yeah, I, I, I want to be a new person. And I felt so good and so optimistic and I don't know, I, maybe COVID did something to me or I, I overdid it. But during that time, I was so hopeful in the last couple of weeks, I've been so depressed again because it feels like um, this is not going away. I mean, I'm, I'm in year eight now and I don't know yeah. where this went. Well, what I would say is, um, I deal with this every day, actually, in my practice. I work with a lot of people with protracted withdrawal. Um, and uh, it's, gosh, I hate to say this because, uh, but but it's normal, you know, that that you, you will have on, on when it's recovering that you could go for sometimes nine months feeling okay and then have three months of setback. Hopefully, it, it's, it's shorter than that uh, for you. But the um, that just is the clinical course that I have seen again and again in the recovery from protracted withdrawal that as it improves, people will, they'll have big streaks where they're feeling great. And then they'll have a couple months feeling bad. Um, all I could say is, I mean, I would say just based on this interview that your prognosis is really positive because if you were a, if your brain was able to regulate into a place where you're feeling hopeful and you're feeling good, that it means that for that stretch of time, um, you were able to pull things back into a, a balance where you didn't have pain, and and now things are out of balance for a little bit, which is totally normal. Um, and eventually, it will just come back together. And I suspect you have less and less bad days, uh, which is really what tends to happen with with pretty much everyone as as this resolves. Um, so I think there's a lot of hope there. I think I needed to hear that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So so tell us, how have you changed as a person because of this? Um, I think um, I um, am more forgiving and more open to other people's feelings and their opinions. I think before all of that, I was very self-absorbed. I was always the smartest person in the room. I was always the smartest kid in class. I um, could like talk to people. I spoke a second language fluently. You know, I was, you know, the dude, the guy, you know, and now I'm not center stage anymore. And I, it took me a while to accept that, but I have found comfort in this new role. Now I listen to people. I don't have to voice my opinion at every given moment. I can um, enjoy doing nothing. 
Before that, there always had to be something. I had to be a party. I had to buy something new. I had to go out. I had to meet friends. And now I can just enjoy sitting at home with a good book, drink a cup of tea. I just ask my wife about her day and I just let her tell her, tell me what, what happened. And I just take it all in and enjoy this time that I have, enjoy the moment um, where I'm pain free where I can actually acknowledge that and like, okay, this is a good day and I'm going to make the best of it. And I think um, I've, I'm more pleasant to be around for other people. And people told me that. They said, you changed. You are different. Um, what's going on with you? And, but I think I changed for the better. What did you think that they were picking up on that um, made them feel like you were more pleasant to be around? Uh, I was, I'm, I'm a pretty sarcastic person. And one of my, if I, if I were a superhero, my super ability would be to pick out your weakness, to spot it in you and make fun of you in an instant yeah. in a room full of people and be relentless about it and yeah. kind of soaking in the laughs and enjoying it and being downright cruel. Yeah. And, um, I, I, this is not, this is not a nice way to be. And I still have these moments where I want to say things like that, mm -hmm. but I, I, now I know that this is, people don't want that. And mm -hmm. it took my sickness and all the suffering for myself and um, to come to the conclusion that I need to not only need to change like my life, but I need to change as a person. Wow. Yeah. So that's pretty, that's pretty deep, you know? <laughs> yeah. You would be, you wouldn't be alone uh, with this. I mean, there's something about enduring years of suffering um, that really changes people's perspectives um, uh, on things. So yeah, I mean, just, just, just like you said. So I, I've asked all of the questions that I can think about at this time, but I want to turn it over to you now. What haven't we covered or that you'd like to talk about, or maybe there's a message that you would like to share? Yeah. I didn't really think, think about that. Yeah. Like I don't really, I don't really, my, my message actually would be to the German uh, healthcare system, but I doubt that anybody is going to watch this. I, 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 I was hoping for a little more awareness with doctors, you know, that something like that is actually possible. You know, people go through this, don't prescribe this stuff. You know, in my case, it's unfair because I prescribed it myself, but mm -hmm. I don't really have a message besides it's getting better. You know, it will get better. You know, you have to, Hang on, mm -hmm. stick to it, and you have to give it time. You know, as you can see, eight years, and I'm still in it, but I definitely feel better. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. It was a pleasure having you. Thanks for having me on, Joseph. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to work with us, go to taperclinic.com where you can discover our pressure-tested strategic taper protocol that has helped hundreds safely discontinue their psychiatric medications. And if you want to see the full video interview or more exclusive videos about tapering tips, medication management, and adverse drug reactions, go follow 
Dr. Yosef on YouTube.